Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. In 2011, I was asked by Radapalix Magazine to interview several innovative Northwest poets. One of them was Carletta Carrington Wilson. From the Cascadia Poetics Lab archives from July 2011, we present an interview with poet Carletta Carrington Wilson. In the mid-20th century, innovative North American poets often had to turn to other traditions for inspiration. One of them was the Spanish concept of duende, described in a seminal essay by Federico Garcia Lorca. The notion that performers, writers included, imbued with duende, are the ones who give you chills because of their emotional intensity and authenticity. It may be what's lacking in most North American poets today, but the work of Carletta Carrington Wilson is filled with it. To quote her work, it is not impervious to centuries, the horrors of which have given us a graphic ground upon which has bled dropped head. Yes, death is present here, and racism certainly, which has lifted its ugly head significantly since the election of President Barack Obama. Carlette is a literary and visual artist whose poems and fiction have appeared in Cimarron Review, Beyond the Frontier, Black Poetry for the 21st Century, Obsidian Three, The Seattle Review, The Raven Chronicles, Uncommon Waters, Women Write About Fishing, and Seattle Poets and Photographers, A Millennium Reflection, among others. An alumna of Hedgebrook Writers Retreat and former participant in the Jack Straw Writers Program, her work is centered around this earth's real and imagined histories, image and image making, and the shaping of sound out of silence. Carlotta, welcome. Thank you. What first drew you to poetry? Well, what a question. Um, I don't know if it's a matter of what drew me to poetry or that poetry drew me. Do you understand that? I do understand. Poetry drew me. Poetry shaped me. And in some way, I guess you could call it a kind of a calling. It was or continues to be an escapable form for me. I cannot remove myself from it. Um, Not that I would want to, frankly. But I find that um, in order to express um, certain ideas and feelings, poetry is, at this point, the only medium by which I can do that. So, in other words, it shows you, not the other way around. Exactly. Right? What I'm trying to do is get a picture of, was it a young girl in Philadelphia who, you know, this you were in the library or in a you know, seventh grade class, or what was, do you remember the first moment? I don't, but you know, it's interesting that you asked that, Paul, because actually I was writing these poems in elementary school. So obviously I was captivated by poetry then. How or why? But I guess I could say, actually, you know, my mother sang to us a lot. Uh, she told lots of stories. Now, why that didn't translate in more into prose, I don't know. But I have always, my earliest memories are of reading poetry in elementary school. In Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. Yeah. 
We mentioned your work is centered around this Earth's real and imagined histories. Now, that means a lot of different things to different people. <laughs> so what does it mean to you exactly? Well, you know, I think, and, and actually, I see that in two different ways. You know, people create history. And there's a history that you can find, particularly because of my work, at this point in time deals a lot with language and meaning. Um, so if you have the mechanism to create a history, that history sort of lays over these other histories that may not be, um, people might not have the capability of, let's say, broadcasting them or putting them in a form. So I'm basically talking about, let's say, oral history and written history, histories that, you know, you might be able to go to a library and find shelf upon shelf of books about a particular subject. But there are also histories that aren't on that shelf. So the, the, the notion that history is written by the victors of the wars is, is Yes, you is can say present, that. Right. Yeah. And, and the notion of uh, Diane de Primas, which comes out of Charles Olson, history is a living weapon in your hand. Oh, that's a good way right? to say it. So, so that we, and it's up to the poets to write the history. So that's, you find that as something uh, that's uh, central to your practice. Is that accurate? Yes. Can you give us an example? Um, of written and unwritten history or history that, that is his known and unknown? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, actually, the, the image that informs my work, or let's say that has informed my work for some years now, is the history of an unknown woman. A woman, my, I, let me back up here. I am a, a student of slavery and and a student in particular of the West African slave trade, but now am a student of the history of slavery in the world, which still, as you may be well aware, still exists, people enslaving one another. And so I was um, curious, after reading all of these um, accounts of... Um, the explorers or um, people who had uh, gone to the continent of Africa and described what they have seen. Um, there are even previously enslaved Africans who went to Europe, England, let's say in this case, um, began to write in the English language and then told their story of capture. But if you go back, you do not find the story told by a woman. And that's the story that haunts me to this day, how someone um, made that journey into what has been termed the new world and how that person had to make sense of what happened to them all of that is, I would say, the history of the disappeared. And that is sort of a loaded phrase because we, you know, equate that to what particularly happened, let's say, in Argentina, what happens in Latin America, people being disappeared. But in essence, the people who were taken and had been taken for centuries, not just 
from, uh, let's say, the, the West African coast to the, what we know as the Americas, but way before that, taken north into the Arab-speaking countries, all these people disappeared, and there is not a trace. You can find history sometimes written through the men, but not the women, and that is what informs this for me. You know, you start talking about this, and I'm immediately taken back to an interview I did with Marita Dingus, who mm-hmm. you, you may mm-hmm. know, who visited the uh, the jail where they kept slaves before their transport to mm-hmm. uh, North America. Mm-hmm. And the um, sense of claustrophobia she felt while visiting that place, and imagine how many people were there at one time. It's just it's just a, a, a creepy feeling that, that stays with you when that image is put in your head mm-hmm. and really remarkable. I mean, you talk about Duende. I mean, this is, you know, Duende to the, to the 10th power. I want to talk more about the African experience in America because improvisation is one of the great legacies. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, the first thing that comes up is the jazz improvisers mm-hmm. uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and it's something very close to my heart having been in jazz radio and been a jazz fan since I was a little boy. Um, but also the classic call and response of the Negro spirituals. And uh, there's just a sense of improvisation which uh, very much goes through the tradition of Africans in America. How does it inform your work? Well, that's a good question. I am also... Um I would say a student of jazz, um, of that highly complex musical language, which I have to say exists nowhere else. And it comes out of, I believe, it comes out of this terrible situation where someone, where your tongue literally has been pulled out and you have to find a way to articulate the experience. It was not safe, still is to some degree, not safe to fully express what has happened, the journey. But I find that jazz musicians have been able to do this through the music, through sound, through that, that metal, through the strings, through skin, they've been able to reconfigure these feelings into these articulations that I think it's interesting. I heard um, or read one um, jazz musician was saying, well, you know, we had to make it like this, you know, so that the, the white guys wouldn't copy us. But what it said to me is that they kept trying to recreate a language, for instance, that has not existed. It takes a while for, I think, new ways of thinking, new ways of expression to break through a barrier that literally, in some ways, is unseen. So in your work, certainly there's that influence. I mean, you, when we hear the work, we'll, we'll hear the jazz influence. But what about in the practice of composing? What level of improvisation is there? I mean, when you're writing on the page, uh, certainly you go back. You, In fact, before this interview, took I, out the, the, the word in. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You're going to make a revision. You take out the word in uh, of this poem, which is... It's just interesting to see that. So, I mean, you know, that's that's not a revision. That's a little bit tweaking, or maybe a sculpting to the to the um, 
to the moment, a uh, sculpting of the moment. Is your is your poem uh, uh, when you're writing it something that's written in the moment, and if it needs extensive revisions, you you throw it out, or how does it work? Well, actually, I think I approach writing poems the way a musician approaches composition. Um, I usually have a phrase that sort of is the centering idea or theme that'll come. Um, And literally, over a period of time, I um, riff off of that. You know, what does it mean? It's like, you know, if you do these sort of word histories, all these little spokes come out. And I start to pull all those disparate pieces, you know, words and sounds together. But I literally see myself doing this as, not as a writer or a poet, but as a jazz musician. As a frustrated musician, I have to say, because I can't write music. And so I love that sort of um, way in which these uh, pieces of sound and ideas and words are knitted together, are held together, and then they literally, there's a point in which I say, you were saying earlier, they pop. At some point, something breaks loose, and I'm able to how can I say, ride with that energy? It becomes energized. The sound is moving through it, and I'm able to move along with that. Does that make sense to you? It does make sense. And the question, whether three things that come Mm -hmm. up or or more, but the notion is that you're you're tracking this then, and and the source of it might be outside of you, and you're just something, you've trained yourself to be able to follow that. Yes, definitely, definitely, yeah. It's not, you know, it's interesting you say that because, Sometimes when I talk to people, I tell them I'm not writing with my head. My head's not there. It's coming from the gut. It's coming from some other space. Now, I can tell when I start to do the head thing, and then I have to let it go. But, the, yeah, it it's like you're right. I am linking into some sort of energy or idea. And sometimes I say to myself, well, where am I going to go now? You know, it, it, it isn't anything that I can say, well, now I'm going to write a poem about, you know, the typeface of the erased. I'm not going to do that. Right. But one day that phrase came to me, typefaced of the erased. And then I had to say, now, what is that about? Uh-huh. You knew you had some gold at that moment. I, I, uh, I saw Fred, late Fred Anderson, who was uh, part of the, one of the founders of the uh, Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. He mm-hmm. played at the Rainier Valley Cultural Center. Oh. Uh, I think it was about 10 years ago, nine, 2001, I think it was. And there were two 45-minute pieces improvised from scratch wow. with Hami Drake and uh, William Parker, uh, a trio. And I came up to Hami Drake in a state that uh, of altered consciousness, mm-hmm. I think, and I said, well, that was absolutely amazing. He said, uh, I just, how, where do you get that? And he said, it wasn't me. It was the Holy Ghost. <laughs> so he's getting to the same concept that you are. And in your describing your process, it's sort of like uh, you, you might be the answer to uh, the question, what do you get when you cross a librarian with John Coltrane? <laughs> <laughs> something, something in the middle there. Okay. 
So, so this this process of you get the the phrase typeface of the erased, and then maybe there's a process of incubation, yes, or it creates this field around exactly. which and, and the tools. I'm guessing the sources. Uh, tend to drop in your lap. I mean, being around books as a librarian, certainly, and I'm sure in your home there's an extensive mm-hmm. library, uh, as well as um, other sources, whether that be paintings or music mm-hmm. or what have you. Mm-hmm. So the incubation process begins, and then mm-hmm. when you sit down to write, it's a matter of uh, hanging on to that comet till it's over. Precisely. Yeah. Well, why don't we give people a sense of what your work is for those who don't know your work by by having you read a couple of poems? Fine. Thank you. All right. Talking with Carletta Carrington-Wilson, and uh, she's going to read that poem that we talked about, Typeface of the Erase, and one, one other poem. Typeface of the Erased. Ardent Imprints of 100,000 characters and more are leafing through leaves, turning tails in unpaginated flourishes, along cloth-faced bricks of a letter, the book-bound become unfound, unbound by a book-block's signature lock. Grave accents Note the footnotes of each fugitive type, impervious to centuries, indivisible from their graphic ground, upon which is bled, dropped head, disappeared descender, grotesque croppings of brush-footed fonts, broken-necked echoes of severed articulation uncorrected text of vortex, double daggers, gallows, cartridge, guillotine, cutting machine. Of course, with risks, there are always errors of division, discontent content, typos that don't know typography from topography or what holds a bastard body in the climb of a hairline's peculiar crotch, heel neck, dashes, where fist-swelled rules rule by impositions, sharp impressions, schemes. Laid out in coffin, casket, gutter, the slug, the punch, the pulled, stabbed, battered, squashed, scabby, knife, turned out, transposed, dragged, encased in chase, feet in galley, beard in pages, face in sheets, back in the hole, shoulder in the opening, type up, ink in, ink over, justify. A letter form must conform to an imposing order be boxed in by bracket, indent, line, guard, border. The type designer must head up, drive out, keep in, bank on, display, bind. The living language into perfectly decomposed rows of cane break font face, tobacco type, ship, subscript, cotton corpus, rice rotunda, salt gothic, caravan cursive, skeleton antique. 
a text of breaths ghostly gathering, has come and gone on a ship of authorship, the foul-proof earmarked by blurred and fuzzy words, slur of fog enveloping width, size, shape, length, weight of the unfixed script. Yet, machine boys make ready, set tightling fonts, depth of strike, and the style of the house correct, die stamp, drop shadows, do up the dirty proof on a dinky sheet, divide, drag, draw, bleed, choke, crease, cut, cut the line, cut in, cut off, cut down, cut up, cut back, cut out, set text and teeth of cog with sweepings and clerical errors. Draw crossbars along a spine. Register a running headline in Lucida black letter. Night of the monotype is a ten-point body put to bed amid fox, elephant, donkey, turkey, duckfoot, dog ears, worm, slug, wagoose, goatskin, sheepskin, dragon's blood flies. As the shoe flies, there goes in sixteen mo, twenty-four mo, thirty-two mo, a half-tone dandy, rolling off a roller. He is, isn't he, a cast-off caption whose quarter-bound back is shredded by the whip-stitchery of illegible strokes, for the body embodies typefaces, problems of languages, rigidly styled, hand-bound, hand-colored, hand-set, describing disappearances of the disappeared. But he who means to be unbound, unchecked, unsold, unfolds himself from the stock-still fettering of unabridged letterings. Watermarked and ragged, dense text reflects how the tombstone script, clinging to his lips, begins to crack, fade, and tear, flake off as the fictional figure becomes emboldened, enlarged, and thus print of the first footprint, the bare, untouched beginning, begetting, begotten, begone. For the listener, in the following poem, whenever you hear the word I, it is spelled E-Y-E. I've been spelled. Sly on the fly. Ride high, dip down, come round. Slip in on skin. Veil, eye, shut, ear, twist, mouth, shout out. Lip wide, mouth pursed. A curse is a curse. Spell in, spell ah, spell is, spell be on me. Now I has no inclination for none of that divination. Make no way with haunt, fetish, root, hearsay. Ain't partial to transformation of a body's inclination. Except why that be, come erase me. 
Anybody can see without the P spelling turn to selling. Yeah, done become numb like a number. Got a number name and buy, sell, hell. Ain't nothing but shell money. Whereby the C and me come to be shut up, shut out, shut away. Anywho, why not you have your way on any old day? Cause you's masterful and eyes be your property. Got to put me in a place, stay in that place, tied alive to a somebody I cannot see. If I belong to you, don't you belong to me? Who is you? Who do done did the A-E-I-O-U on me? Your sales is all up in my skin. How has I come to be possessed by excess? Occupied by eyes, I fight, I like, can't stand being chained to a chain of names. Heard them shout, heard them say what they would and would not pay on that day. I was collapsed by syntax, a presence of absence. Was it true when they say I owe you and not the other way round? I read signs, count on nothing. Letters be my fetters, numbers nail my cell. Spelling keep me busy as a bee. I is somebody's busy body. No protection from a spell's projection. Did you do, have you done, get it done? Is I, will I forever be nothing but a property? I is misspelled, bewitched by which way to be. I got carried to miscarried, took from mistook, taken over by mistaken, left bereft by misforsaken, if I thinks. I gets confused, confused by how I am used, start to think on what my eye does, did, do, done see, for they done see me. A spelling bee. A A, a B, a C, a D. Line them up just like that. Forwards to back, pick them up, put them in a row. Now, I knows about rules. How to plant, pick, grow. You can grow a letter, make your own crop. But you better plant them right. When you plant them right, you're saying something. Everybody lined up like a letter. Every word has got to be heard and spelled on out. So I says to me, if I could spell, maybe I could spell these spells out of me. Take a fire knife L to fell the tail of that untold hole. Then maybe I won't get confused about using or being used. I would wake up and smell my own coffee. Yeah, I would be me a queen bee. Queen bee of me now. Won't that be a thing for a body to see? I just might turn back to my old used to be me. Yeah, I would spell it like it is. I's bees buzzing, cousin. Would be one humming bee spelling out S-D-I-N-G-E-R. Who out there? Yes, you are misspelled. I dare you be swole up shut. Shut up. Shut out and shut away from that day's doings. Yeah, I gonna wake up smelling coffee. Gonna sip on it a while, child. Think about how each letter gonna come and go. Well, I, well, I just might be me a black seat.
Why not? Why not unravel the plot? See into the sea that done capture up the eye in me. Oh, oh, gonna have to hold that old used to be me. Along for a time, gonna tell her about fiery brandings, scorching skin, leaving marks outside, and then gonna say, if you take away the kin, you get sin. If you take away the S, you get skin with lies for truth and them closed eyes refusing to stop their using, setting up on the roof of the mouth, looking out their tiny little house a mine. Ain't nothing but an attic full of dusty old trunks full of locked up letters. Somebody done tied and cast aside, left alone, like in an abandoned home. I gon' open that trunk. Find me a tree. Branch broke, limb bent. I gon' see how the honey be searched for her lost hive. Why did her bowl of sweet turn salt? Shake her till she shook up, smoked out, smashed, scooped up, and took away for the making and the baking of some other eyes, fresh baked pie. Well, it's good that uh, they have a little bench here in the studios because you might just want to lie down after reading that. <laughs> My Lord, that, uh, that, I see why you stood up now. I, yes. I can see it very clearly. Yeah. And, you know, I wish I had video of your foot tapping when you were Are spelling you out. That was really beautiful. Thank you. You know, you think. I'm not uh, aware of it. Uh, well, yeah, it was, uh, it was obviously embodied, which a lot of work isn't, and um, remarkable. Thanks for that. Thank you. You know, Sam Hamill hates it when people say, why don't you write poetry that doesn't have politics in it? <laughs> is it possible to do such a thing, or is the lack of uh, politics in anyone's poetry a political statement of its own? Well, I think all poetry is political, and we are all political beings. You know, we may choose not to describe ourselves that way, but it's literally impossible to be on one side or the other without stating your quote-unquote position. Yeah. Um, some of the uh, politics or content that I get out of the poems that you read is uh, how... Uh, language is used to control in, in some cases. Um, the deadness of a language that's removed from the body, which obviously, I mean, we were just talking about how your work is embodied. Uh, Charles Olson has a great line about closed verse. He calls it that verse which print bread. And mm. uh, that, uh, I think, goes to the heart of uh, at least one of the themes of typeface of the erased. And one other thing about the work, there's a refreshing lack of syntax. You know, so much of what passes for poetry today uh, I think is boring prose chopped up into line breaks. But mm -hmm. yours isn't that. Um, you know, there's there's no way you could put this into into a prose format and think that it's prose. Um, why is it important for you to use language in this way? And, and does it come naturally in the composition process or do you have to go back and, and sculpt it? Oh. Well, first I want to say, I want to respond to something else that you've said. You know... Um, we are all language makers, and we define um, our lives and actually, frankly, define others through language. You know, whether you come from an oral or written culture, we are always shaping our shaping meaning 
and defining moments, relationships. So um, the work that I'm doing, I feel, is um, an attempt to, and I think it's kind of impossible in some way, to, to find a language to express uh, a state of being in which you come into a culture. It's not that all Africans were, spoke, just had an oral culture. Some literally did have a written language. But for, the, for people coming, we can see this today, for people coming and just trying to learn English so that they are able to move throughout the society and communicate is extremely difficult. And to do that in the context in which there were no books to refer to, there was, you know, there are no groups that you can go to, to try to articulate yourself in an environment in which you did not even have permission to speak is something I'm trying to get at in this work. Does that make sense? Yes, something you can uh, attempt to describe but can only approximate. Yes. And so poetry is the language for that because you can get at it from a different angle. Right, right. And so um, now I don't exactly remember what you... I was talking about the syntax and, and, and you know, especially in the second poem, how, you know, that, that's a dialect that's being reflected and reflected very accurately on the page. So as you're writing, does it come out just like that or do you have to go back and... Oh, no, 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 no. Because literally, I mean, I'm telling you that voice, that the voice of that woman, sometimes actually with that poem I've been spelled, I was really like, well, you know, do you have the right to speak this way? I mean, I was... Is it, is it true? Is it a true voice? But the one thing is that whatever voice it is, is that that is what is insistent in me. This is how this poem is going to go. So no, um, actually, that came out that way. I First it came, I've been spelled, E-Y-E. And when that happened, again, what I generally do is say, so what does this mean? I've been spelled. And I just sort of mull over that. Again, as I described earlier, mull over it, and then another phrase will come. The miss, um, I was, um, what is it? Misspelled. I've been mis misspelled, uh -huh, in, uh -huh. bewitched by which way to be. Uh -huh. That was the, the second sort of key phase that came. Mm -hmm. um, and when you really think about the idea that is, of course, you can say that sort of, idea of being able to spell and this history that humans have of the whole thing of witchcraft and being put under a spell. Those are the two core ideas in that poem. So you're saying the poem is a reception. It is a transcription of the voice that you hear. Well, yes. Although I have to say this, which is kind of, um, I mean, we're only doing two poems here, but this is what I would call a suite, and I'm sure you get on, you sort of get on a theme, and you know I start to do language. So once that was apparent to me that I was really working with this whole idea of language, these 
poems, these pieces come, but I'm drawing on, it's sort of not fallow ground. They all are related in some way. That's why I chose typeface of the erase with I've been spelled. They all are interrelated. Once you're in, or I should say, once I'm in that kind of field, right, once I'm there, lots of stuff pops up. Lots of stuff pops up. All the ideas may not be executed. I have to decide, for instance, well, is does that phrase make a whole new poem or does it go inside of another one? But it's really based on having done a tremendous amount of reading and research. Of course, of course. So and, and it comes through. It yeah. comes after that. And I feel that once you have given yourself a foundation, then all this other stuff bubbles up out of it. Right, and the foundation being the sources, being the life that you live as a reader, as an artist, as a person living, having this experience. You're talking about serial poems, and, yes. uh, and, and I want to talk more about that. But I do want to mention that when we, we talk about that passage, uh, misspelled, miss this, miss that, and I can't find it exactly. Mistaken uh, by miss first. There it is, uh, yeah. yeah, misspelled and, and what have you, uh, M-I-S-S spelled. So there's the female again because you're saying miss. So people have to really look at the page to get, and, and I think I had it perfect because I was looking at the text and seeing you in the corner of my eye and seeing you tapping your foot. So really the experience is to be able to hear you in person mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and have that full experience. But to get back to the notion of serial poems, I mean, I think this is really part of the tradition of being a West Coast poet. I mean, you look at Jack Spicer, who, by the way, is rumored to have said, uh, as his dying words, my vocabulary did this to me. So, wow. so is what you're talking about exactly, talking about language. And there was another part after that, but that's the salient part. Uh, people like uh, Robin Blazer, um, uh, Image Nations, his part of his mm. serial poem, and his, his book at the end of his life, the whole book of his poems, um, you know, uh, coming out the holy forest, his I mean, it's it's mm -hmm. really one serial poem. Uh, Nate Mackey, who mm -hmm. uses Dogon cosmology, Song mm -hmm. of the Andumbulu. Uh, mm -hmm. So, does it um, does it mean anything to you to be an, a West Coast poet? Absolutely. Um, I think we were talking about this earlier, but I find um, even as Seattle becomes more urbanized and dense. Um, you're still close to the natural world in a way that you cannot be on the East Coast, for instance, where I come from in Philadelphia, even though I did grow up close to one of the major parks, Fairmount Park, which is, I think that informed my love of nature but in Seattle, you know, you're right there. Just a few weeks ago, it was the lowest tide of the summer. And I went over there to Golden Gardens. And the, you could walk basically almost a mile out into what's called now the Salish Sea. You know, the sound was changed. Um, and there were starfish that were like crayon purple. There were the sea anemones, the cukes, sea cucumbers. There were the jellyfish. And for the first time, I saw six heron all together 
just slurping up the poor fish who was stuck <laughs> on the sandbar. It's showtime. <laughs> but um, I, you know, the thing is, I just relished that, and I have, as we, you know, are in the Northwest. I mean, people move here to be so close to nature in this way, to be close to, I feel, to the wild, not to, you know, a, a kind of uh, built-up boardwalk and, you know, to be able to get to the wild sea. And so I think all of the permeations of, you know, um, the land still reside in a strong way in the Pacific Northwest. I think that's why people are here fight to the best ability to keep overloading the natural world. And so, yes, if that makes me a West Coast poet, then I'll gladly be one. Well, that's part of it, and we certainly could talk for an hour or two about the specifics of that. But one last theme, we talked a little bit about this uh, in the car on the way here, the notion that the Seattle literary tradition is still kind of young, um, still not uh, developed in a full way, um, certainly as opposed to uh, other communities uh, and 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 places where the language tradition has gone on longer. Now, the funny thing about it is we talked about the painters were able to achieve a level of mastery that um, the literary community hasn't yet, Toby, Graves, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What do you think that is about Seattle's um, literary uh, tradition? Well, you know, I think, and in, in fact, there, in Seattle, you know, there's these different communities of writers and poets but, you know, the best thing about Seattle, which I've said to uh, many a person, is that you can work here. You know, you can be very internal in this city, and it's all right. You know, um, you most of us are coming from other places, and I think the function of at least the Pacific Northwest, the part that I know, is the function is that you can really move into deep contemplation. You're not drawn out in the same way. I mean, you're drawn out, let's say, to the mountains, but you're not under pressure to go to the beach every day if you were like in California and the sun is shining and you feel guilty for being inside. But here, I mean, the rain has, has really served the purpose of contemplation of adding this kind of deep kind of rumination of ideas. And that's what I find. So therefore, you don't find people congregating around that. That's not the purpose of it. Coming from other places, this place allows you to think about the larger world, at least for me, the larger world, larger ideas, this huge landscape of the world, I don't think I could do it anywhere else. I don't think I could think about the kinds of things that um, have occupied me for more than a decade now. In another environment, there's a lot of quiet here. For the most part, the city is really quiet. People are um, friendly and open, but respectful. There are a lot of writers here, a lot of artists, and I always tell someone, you know, you can get your work done here. 
What a great way to end the interview. I don't know how, how, where we can go from that, but um, thanks. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Paul. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at cascadiapoeticslab.org.